How do we have hope when we feel imprisoned by real or imaginary bars? How do we trust? How do we trust that God is at work in our world and our lives when it's hard to see evidence from where we stand? How do we know, I mean really know, that Jesus is the one when there is still so much injustice, uncertainty, and sin so many years after he promised that the kingdom of God was at hand? These are likely some of the questions that John the Baptist was wrestling with 2,000 years ago while sitting in a prison cell awaiting his death. But I also think there are questions that we wrestle with today, two millennia after Jesus died arose again to make all things new. In times of such disruption and distortion and disorientation, it can be very difficult to see, very difficult to believe that the great transformation promised by Jesus is actually underway. And so we ask, in our own ways, using our own words from behind our own bars, we ask, is Jesus really the one, or should we be waiting for another? Years ago, Baptist minister John Claypool lost his eight-year-old daughter to cancer, and he could not but share his grief with his congregation. In one sermon, Claypool talked about the importance, the necessity of questioning God. Did not Jesus himself agonize with God in Gethsemane, he wrote, and cry out from the cross, why have you forsaken me? He then went on to say something that I have found essential in my own personal journey with God. He wrote this, there is more honest faith, there is more honest faith in an act of questioning than in the act of a silent submission. For implicit in the very asking is the faith that some light will be given. Just like John, we have expectations. We have expectations of one another, of Jesus, and ultimately of God. And when our reality, when our situation doesn't meet those expectations, when things don't turn out as planned, and there seems no way out of the mess we find ourselves in, it's right, I think, and necessary for us to wonder and to ask and to question, is Jesus really the one we should be following? For in the very questioning, in that honesty, is the hope, the belief, the faith that God will in some way respond. The year was 1943, and another advent had dawned for Pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer really loved the season of Advent, and he preached a lot of sermons during the season of waiting and hope, and sermons about making a metaphor of waiting and hope and the metaphor of the entire Christian journey. We wait and we hope, and then we wait and then we hope, and then we wait again. Just one year earlier, during the advent of 1942, Bonhoeffer had written a circular letter to some of his family and friends, a letter in which he wrote these words. The joy of God, he wrote, goes through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. This is why it is invincible and irrefutable. The joy of God does not deny the anguish when it is there, but finds God in the midst of it, in fact, precisely there. It does not deny grave sin, but finds forgiveness precisely in this way. It looks death straight in the eye, 
but it finds life precisely within it. Of course, these words of Bonhoeffer took on a much deeper meaning for him and for us in December of 1943 when he found himself awaiting trial in Berlin's Tegel military prison. At this point, Bonhoeffer still hoped, still had the faith that he might be released from prison to see his family and friends again. But as many of us know, that was not to be. Though he'd be shifted to other prisons and concentration camps on the way to his eventual execution in April of 1945, Bonhoeffer would never again be free. As he came to terms with this fate, with his end, Bonhoeffer wrote to his friends sharing with them how he managed to keep his faith from behind prison bars. He found comfort, he told them, in a few simple things. The hymns of his faith and the daily readings of the scriptures, especially the stories from the Old Testament that told of God's faithfulness and power, those things, the hymns that sang the stories and the scriptures that read the stories, both gave him strength each and every day. But he also found hope in simple gifts, simple acts of grace, simple moments that came his way, a thrush singing beautifully in the prison garden, a cigar smuggled in by a friend, a sweater knitted by his fiancée, and a slice of smoked goose from his family's holiday meal. To keep the faith in the prison, the place he was kept and locked in key, he remembered all that God had done through stories of the faith and acknowledged all that God was doing, even behind the prison's walls. Are you the one, John asks, or are we to wait for another? It's a fair question, really. And you would think Jesus might be direct with somebody in his family, a cousin at least. He might give him a straight answer, a yes or no answer. But Jesus doesn't do that even for John. Instead of answering his doubts with a declarative statement to be clear, instead of unlocking the prison door to show God's power, instead of giving him a prophecy of what in time would be, Jesus simply tells John what God has done and what God is doing for the poor, the sick, the blind, and the lame. Jesus helps John remember and to see the faithfulness of God towards those who God need God the most. It's the human condition, I think, to obsess, to focus on what is right before us, to focus on the issue, the crisis, the problem at hand, and there is great wisdom in being present to the moment you're in. But I'm beginning to wonder if much of faith is an exercise, a discipline, a struggle to expand our vision beyond what we can see. Because all of us, all of us are limited in what we can see. Like John, all of us can only see what's in front of us. Sometimes the limitation comes from circumstances beyond our control. Sometimes the limitation comes from our own stubbornness and sin. Sometimes we can't see because we're not supposed to see. And sometimes our sight lines are obscured because we are in deep, real suffering and pain. We are all, all of us, limited in what we can see. But when we listen to the collective witness in scriptures, in families, and in church families, when we listen to the collective witness of what God has done and what God is doing, When we remember and recognize stories of personal redemption, stories of new life and new hope, stories of something working out in the end when a time we couldn't possibly imagine how, when we do that, when we recognize and remember, our faith is restored. 
And hope arrives, like it always does, as a gift of grace. The story goes that when someone visited the studio of Henry Moore, the famous modern English sculptor, the visitor, looking at one of Moore's works, asked him, is it finished? Moore replied, none of our work is finished until it's seen and responded to. None of our work is finished until it's seen and responded to. What if this is true for God's work as well? What if God's work is never really finished, never really complete, until it's responded to by all? What if all those stories about what God did for the Israelites, what Jesus did for the poor, the blind, the sick, and the lame, and what God has done for some of you and some of your family and some of your friends, what if those stories in the past still have power for today? What if remembering what God has done and recognizing what God is doing gives us the strength we need to wait in faith and hope and in love? Right now, as a church family, we are going through a very difficult time. Church families go through difficult times. Not only is the world around us full of anxiety and uncertainty, but we are also saying goodbye to a beloved pastor and a friend to many of you. And this leave-taking during such a time of instability in our world is stirring up all kinds of emotions in all of us. Sadness, guilt, anger, fear, hope, and yes, even doubt. As you've experienced a full range of emotions over the past few weeks, and I would argue the past few months, I hope you found comfort and strength and faith as I have in remembering all the ways God has seen you through. You know, as a church, we just celebrated our 100th anniversary. Seems like a lifetime ago. And while we focused primarily in those celebrations on all the good times over the past 100 years, we all know there were just as many hard times, times that challenged this congregation's faith in God and one another, times that caused people to wonder, is Jesus really the one we should be following, or is it time to wait for another? And yet here you are, here we are, still doing ministry, still struggling to be relevant, still finding our way, stumbling along the path. And through it all, God has been and is being faithful. We take a moment, I think, to remember that all God has done and to recognize all that God is doing, which is really hard in a crisis. I think we make room for the impossible. We acknowledge all the times God has seen us through. We make room for a faith that says that with God, despite all of our faults and failures, with God, anything is actually possible. Clarence Jordan was a man of unusual abilities and commitment. He had two PhDs, one in agriculture and one in Greek New Testament. Not sure how those fit, but pretty cool. He could have chosen, I guess I'm saying, he could have chosen to do anything he wanted to do. He was that smart, and yet he chose, above all things, to serve the poor. In 1942, Clarence Jordan founded a farm in America's Georgia and called it Koinonia. It was an intentional community for poor whites and poor blacks, which was not a popular idea in the deep south of the 1940s. Not even his own church supported him. The townspeople, they tried everything to stop Clarence and his friends. They tried boycotting him, 
and slashing workers' tires when they came to town. For 14 years, they terrorized him, trying to stop him from doing what he was doing. Finally, in 1954, the Ku Klux Klan had enough of Clarence Jordan, so they came one night with guns and torches and set fire to every building on the Koinonia farm, all except Clarence's home, which they decided instead to riddle with bullets. They chased off all the families that night, all except one African-American family who refused to leave. As the night went on, Clarence recognized and heard the voices of many of the Klansmen, some of whom he went to church with on Sunday. Another voice he recognized was that of the local newspaper's reporter. The next day, that very reporter came back to see what remained of the farm with a mind to do a story on the terrible tragedy of the farm's closing. The rubble still smoldered and the land was scorched. But there was Clarence in the field, hoeing and planting. The reporter kept prodding Clarence, trying to get a rise out of him, who was inexplicably planting instead of packing his bags. Finally, the reporter said in a very haughty voice, Well, Dr. Jordan, you've got two of them PhDs and you've put 14 years into this farm and there's nothing left of it all. Just how successful do you think you've been? Clarence stopped hoeing and turned toward the reporter. He looked him in the eyes and said quietly but firmly, Sir, I don't think you understand us. What we're about is not success, but faithfulness. We're staying. Good day. Seventy-five years later, Quenia Farm still runs its operations in America, long after both all the men who tried to burn that place to the ground and Clarence Jordan have long since gone. I'm convinced there are countless stories like that one, countless stories like this in our world, in our nation, in our church, and in all of our lives, stories that give us hope and courage. So I implore you to share them. Remember all the impossible things God has done for you and for other people. And then look at, for all the impossible things God is doing right here and now. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Because all these years later, both his stories and our stories of God's faithfulness still have power. Because whenever we hear them and respond to them, they give us hope by reminding us that God can be trusted, that hope is real, that sin is real, that we struggle and stumble along the way. But no matter where we find ourselves... Faith can be found right there. Amen.